we are going to continue just for these next short moments into the book of Isaiah. Um, so we opened it up to chapter um, 59 before you might want to hover around there. Um, if I might just add another short reading from Isaiah chapter 63, just to say, obviously children are in with us this morning uh, because we've got the fun program this evening. If your kids need somewhere where they can make a ruckus and run around, then the cafe is open downstairs. So please feel free to head down if you need to be nice and noisy. That's okay. Um, Just to add these few verses then from Isaiah 63, just reading from the beginning of that chapter and adding it to the portrait that we've had Um, presented to us who is this who comes from Edom in crimson gardens from Bosra he who is splendid in his apparel marching in the greatness of his strength it is I speaking in righteousness mighty to save that was a good place for a hallelujah it gets a little bit thorny from here on in Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. It's a bit of a contrast there. We'll come back to that in a moment. Seems like a contrast, actually a compliment. I looked... But there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now see, there's a reason why I didn't read those verses in our worship. Because if I then got you to say, come on, let's worship Jesus. You probably would all be kind of like slack-jawed in the very horror of it. And looking at me like, I don't know. What? 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 Probably, if you know anybody like me, your uh, social media feeds of late have been populated um, by pictures that you know are of your friends or your family, but they've looked a little bit different recently. Is that right? Anybody else see this face app thing absolutely everywhere? Talk to me. Okay, good. I, I didn't really, I, I thought maybe there was some sort of social media kind of fast that we as a church have been practicing and you just didn't let me know about it. No, it's been absolutely everywhere, hasn't it? Absolutely everywhere. And, um, and of course, you see the pictures of people, but how many years is it aging people by? Is it like 20 years or something like that? You're really just not going to talk to me, most of you, are you, this morning? But okay, some of you are, thank you. Um, you see these pictures, and, and the people just look totally, totally different. And, and yet they're kind of the same, but different. The same, but different. And, um, and you're kind of looking at it, and you're thinking, goodness me, um, what, 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 am I, what am I looking at? And um, this is what we have presented to us this morning in the Scriptures. Because in what we've read this morning in chapters 59 and 63, we see a presentation of some of the familiar things of the character and the the nature and the work of our God. But then we also see some of the extreme things of our God. And it's something for us to wrestle with. 
Now these chapters that we're considering over the summer, chapters from 56 through to 66, which, which we've given the title of, of God as the sovereign conqueror, they, they kind of have a little format, a little structure that might be helpful to you in their reading, in that they begin and they end uh, with, with something uh, of a picture uh, of what it is that, that, that the world looks like, some of the struggles and the troubles and, the, and some of the sheer horrors of our world. And then as you come in from those brackets, those bookends, you find there that there is something then of what we are called to as the faithful people of God. Does anybody ever feel inadequate? Does anybody ever feel inadequate to fulfill the calling of the faithful people of God? I'm going to return to our oranges. Does anybody feel a little bit skinless? Does anybody ever feel like you might sink? And not just in the face of some of the horrors of the world, but actually sometimes we feel like we, we, we sink in the face of the, the promise or the possibility of God. If we fall into the trap of thinking that we have to realise this. No, no, no. Let's get to the centre of these chapters. Here then we find that God has already looked... And he's seen that there is no one who can accomplish the fullness of his work. And so he, his own arm, his own righteousness will accomplish it. And then right in the center of it, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to see exactly what that will look like. The day of the Lord's favor. So that's going to be the really happy heart to everything. But this morning, happiness... Well, we're in something of a pursuit of God's glory, but there's something to struggle with and wrestle with on the way. Many of you, um, you might be familiar uh, with a, a gentleman who went by the name of Hudson Taylor. Anybody heard of this missionary? A few of us. I think we need to do some work on the biographies of the saints uh, because this guy, oh my goodness, what a life. What a work of mission and what an incredible blessing of God upon his life. But as with most people who pursue God wholeheartedly with everything that they have, they know some struggles and difficulties along the way. Does anybody want to say an amen to that? Um, the pursuit of God entails with it the struggles of that journey, doesn't it? Uh, you know, I, I, I probably say this verse as many as any others in the, the scriptures, John 16 and verse 33. In this world you will have trouble. But we take heart because God has overcome the world. This is the word of Christ Jesus to you this morning. But Hudson Taylor, he knew something of those struggles, much of those struggles. And there's a, if you were to read his biography, there's a particular kind of episode I want to point us to. When he was at a terribly low ebb, really low. Do you know, believers, that... It's still a part of your experience and your existence here in this broken world to have times of lowness, of struggle. Did you know that? If anybody ever tells you that your only status within this world is to put on some sort of you know, mask-type mask smile and pretend like everything's sunny and beautiful, then I, I tell you, they're lying to you. They're lying to you. And the, the words of Scripture and the example of the saints would tell us quite the opposite, in fact. That there will be times when we find ourselves low. But here is the wonder of it. Jesus comes to us there too. Not with trite uh, cliches or, or glib kind of whatevers. But actually with the power of his wonderful presence, which is the nurture and succor and strength that we need. That was a good place to say amen. So I'm going to persevere with you this morning. If you will persevere with me, talk to me, and let's pray to Jesus together. 
So Hudson Taylor finds himself in this place of lowness, but he's kind of doing the things that he felt moved by God to do nonetheless. And one of those things was he was translating the words of scripture into a particular Chinese language. And so he's just doing it. He's not feeling it, but he's doing it because the call of God is on his life. There's an instruction for us. And he's opening his Bible to where he was up to. And he comes across these words in Mark 11 and verse 22. Really, really simply, there's context for it. You can look at it for yourself. But the the words of God that really jumped out the page at him were, have faith in God. It's quite simple, isn't it? But you know what? When you feel at a low ebb, that can sound a little bit kind of active on our part, can't it? Does anybody even find to have faith in God? Seems like more than you got. Anybody ever feel that way? And so he's kind of looking at it. He's translating these words and he's starting to discover something within what he's translating that the word to have can also be rendered as to hold. Hold. Or to hold on to. And the word faith can often also have the context of faithfulness. And so the Spirit of God starts to speak to him into this understanding of have faith in God and flipping it from something dependent upon himself to this truth that it is all dependent upon God. Hold on to the faithfulness of God. And the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, look, I know you're struggling to have faith in God, but can you hold on to the faithfulness of God? And Hudson Taylor felt, yes, I can. You see, oftentimes we don't need an imperative to kind of, you know, kind of smack us about the face a little bit. The truth of the matter is all too often we're wired in a way that rejects the grace of God. And we allow ourselves to to just try and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or try a bit harder. And does anybody ever find that your trying is never quite enough? Does anybody ever find that you come to the end of yourself really, really quickly? And the more often the times that you try to push the boundaries of yourself, the quicker you get to them. Now, maybe you've not quite got to the ends of yourself yet. You will. And then you'll find that you get there a lot quicker the second time. And it'll be really, really quick. It's all right, we're going to talk about the Word of God. Don't worry about the doors. It's not important. It'll be really, really quick before you get there and you get there and you get there and you get there and you get there again. Christian, can I tell you, you are never going to be enough. You are never going to be enough. And please, you know, if that speaks to you as something of an offense, then, then by all means so. But here is what the, the Spirit of God would do through these words. He would remind us that you were never intended to be enough. That actually in this there is freedom and grace because God is your more than enough. Hold on to the faithfulness of God. And we come into a context of a broken world and we come bringing the, the, the character of our own brokenness into that context. And in the midst of all of this brokenness, we recognize where is there enough? Where is there enough for the hope and the healing of our world? Where is there enough for the reformation of our character, the transformation of our lives into the likeness of Jesus Christ? I don't have it. Has anybody got the enough in your back pocket? Did anybody know where, is it in your store cupboard at home? You know, we, 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 we look and we, we thrash around and we're desperately trying to seek where is the enough. 
And the scriptures speak into this. We need these moments, these insights, these encouragements, just like a Hudson Taylor, just like an Isaiah, just like anybody who's ever pursued the kingdom of God. We need these encouragements when everything around seems overwhelming, when we realize that the problem is not so much around but within, for our faith to be built by the faithfulness of God. Now look, if you, if you don't allow for the building of faith in God in your life, if you don't allow for God to establish you firmly upon faith in him, then ultimately you won't stand firm on anything at all. This is, this is the crux of your life. This is the center of it all. We mentioned last week that the book of Isaiah, his ministry, the prophetic word, it kind of, it kind of hinges on a couple of, of climaxes, of, of, of moments of, of trouble, even of terror within uh, the world that he was speaking to. And there were two people, two leaders of the people, firstly Ahaz and then Hezekiah. And, and the challenge was, look, your country is an existential threat time. You might get wiped off the face of the earth. So what are you going to stand on? And for Ahaz, he chose poorly. Does anybody else think of like Indiana Jones and the, and the Last Crusade? He chose poorly. And um, gone. He brought the curse upon the people. So he allied himself with what seemed strong, big armies, horses, chariots, weaponry, military prowess. Not strong at all. But in the second instance, the second time of the existential threat, the crisis for the nation, Hezekiah was prompted by God to turn back to him, away from what might seem like the ways of building strength into our lives and to the way of the underlying fundamental eternal strength of God to see that moment of salvation. Can I say to you this morning, for those who turn to the Lord, God will work his wonderful salvation. It's the testimony of scripture. If I were to just say to you this, this, this morning, turn to one another and tell one another testimony of how when you've placed your trust in him, he's worked his wonderful salvation. I imagine it would take you a while to get going. But once you got going, I probably couldn't shut you up. Because this is the truth of what it is to live according to the power of God at work within our lives. God will work his wonderful salvation. Last summer when we were in chapters 40 to 55, we saw a, a suffering servant who would work the means of salvation in his world. And we Christians, this, this side of the cross, we saw that suffering servant, didn't we? We saw him in the, the scriptures. We saw him coming into the history of humanity and, and being even crucified upon that cross, suffering to serve and to bring us the hope nothing else could. We now know this and we can hold on because we have experienced his faithfulness and salvation, we can hold on to his faithfulness in all things. Yet, in the here and the now of the book of Isaiah, there is a lot of wickedness. And there is an imperfect people of God. There's so much to be done with them. 
And you know what? This is no revelation to you, I'm sure. But we live in an imperfect world. A world of sin. A world of the consequence of sin, of separating itself from God, which is brokenness. And here's another thing that's probably no revelation. We are an imperfect people still. Can we admit to these things? You know, we sometimes we look upon the people of God in the times of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and we say, oh goodness, how could they be like this? Come on, that doesn't you no good. What does you good is to say, Lord Jesus, do not let me be so. God, don't let my heart be hardened as in these days of rebellion. No, no, no. Please God, create within me a clean heart, renew within me a right spirit. Come on, Christian, if you can't read the examples of times past with a heart like that, then I don't know what you're reading it for. God wants to work something wonderful in your life. Amen. And the world is just as broken as ever it was. The people of God are just as dependent upon him as ever they were. And yet he has wonderfully done this perfect work of the cross. So our hope rises to greater heights. The promise of God is yet fulfilled more beautifully and vividly for us, even on this earth. And when God says he will complete the work in your life, then we can trust. He's faithful. When God says he will make this world new, we can trust. Because he's faithful. The God who said, I'm going to come and take your punishment and pain upon my shoulders, he did so. So can you trust him for everything else? I believe that we can. Maybe one day you'll talk to me about it. More than three or four of you will talk to me about it. In our lowest moments, when we see the trouble around, we look at our inadequacy, we may say, is the work of Jesus enough? Will it be brought to this completion? Or if we don't question in such a way, then our hearts may long, as with psalmists of old, how long? How long? When will you make all things new? And come on, let's return to these words in Isaiah and remind ourselves we are not the Savior, and that is good news. We live in a, a country at the moment um, that is undergoing. I say undergoing, this may well be the new normal, I don't know. So say we're undergoing political upheaval. It's been two years now, hasn't it really? Um, possibly a bit longer than that. So maybe this is just always how it's going to be. Does anybody want to say, come Lord Jesus and come right soon? Can get a hallelujah for that. It, this, it might be, this is how it is now, I don't know. Um, but you know, we, we live in political upheaval and I don't know whether you've heard, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Uh, we have a new prime minister um, I think it made a few news bulletins here and there. Um, I'm not going to make particularly any comment about that because, as I've often said, it's not that important. Um, it's really not that important because um, the king hasn't changed. Um, so, you know, <laughs> let's uh, stop freaking out so much, eh? Um, but we have a new prime minister. Immediately, it's because Brexit not that easy to do apparently um, that's, that's the gist of it I think <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's going to be easy no quite hard um, a bit tricky okay um, again no value judgement on Brexit because it's not that important because the kingdom hasn't changed um, so but it's tricky it's tricky and so we've got this new government come on in 
new faces, new names, new sounds. Um, and th- th- that's the reason it might seem. But then in the, that context, they're saying that they want to energize around a lot of other reforms and changes. And so there's all sorts of announcements coming out. 20,000 more policemen. Um, 20 hospitals getting um, fixed somehow or other. A- NHS made winter ready. Total reform to social care. All these kinds of things. And, um, and all this is being promised. And, you know, we just have to wait and see, don't we? And, and to pray, um, perhaps, for how these things might be afforded and delivered. Um, it's hard to argue against their necessity. You know, I don't hear people saying, oh, more police, what a terrible idea. You know, nobody really says that, do they? There's all sorts of different political kind of things around that. And nobody says, ooh, you know, making hospitals better, that's a bad idea. Um, nobody would say that, would they, really? That's just daft. Or, or caring for people in the social environment. Oh, that doesn't need looking at. Um, no, nobody says anything like that. So you've got Brexit, immediate, all these other things, I want to suggest to you, look, you know, you might think, well, all of these things they need attending to, you might think there are all sorts of reasons for this, but I want to suggest to you this morning, when we look at the scriptures and we look at the brokenness of the world, we need to remind ourselves of what is the fundamental truth of all human societies ever, and this will do us good. Because, you know, we have a tendency to think that we're exceptional. As individuals and as societies and whatever, we, 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 we fall into this trap of thinking that our moment is unlike any other moment ever. It's not. It's not. The problem has always been the same. And the answer has always been the same. You see, there's a reason why we need more policemen. And you know, the the actual fundamental reason is not actually austerity, no matter what you might think about that. It's not political decision-making one way or another. The fundamental reason why we need police is because human hearts, at least some of them, are corrupted to the extent that they will commit crime. And some of it violent. There's a reason why we need hospitals that work. And the reason is not austerity or political decision-making. The reason is because bodies are breaking left, right, and center. They ever have done. And we get better and better at patching them up, but we cannot attend to the underlying reality that we are all destined for decay. Because once we were perfectly in the presence of God, and yet in our own wisdom, we decided we didn't need that to live. And now we decay. From the moment we enter into this world, we're destined for death. Our bodies will pass away. These are the fundamental underlying realities. The reason why we need social care reform in this country. It's not a political thing. It's the fact that all of society ruptures and breaks. And simply put, we refuse to take care of one another. We do. Because there is a selfishness within the human heart that refuses to attend to the need of the neighbor. These are the truths of the human condition here and now. And they were exactly the same then and there. We are not exceptional. 
We are standardly broken. We are ordinarily hurting. And this is what it always has been for people to be apart from God. Our society is separated from God. This is why we have to attend to all of these things. Look, what am I saying? We cannot save ourselves. It is right, it is right that we should attend to the symptoms of our brokenness, to protect the vulnerable, to care for the needy, to heal the sick. But ultimately we are putting plasters on the human condition when we truly need the deep and lasting healing that only God can provide. The recognition of our need then becomes the foundation for trusting in God. These passages which we have read today from Isaiah, you know, they, they ask the people then and they ask us today, will you continue to trust in the promise maker? Or will you continue to trust that he is a promise keeper? Now the truth of the matter is, God looks at our world. And what did uh, the, the scriptures teach us? In verse 15 of chapter 59, that God is displeased by the lack of truth and the evil in our world. In verse 16, and it's better rendered in the NIV. In, in, in the ESV, it says he wondered there was no one to intercede. In the NIV, we find that there's something perhaps deeper going on, that God is appalled, appalled by the lack of righteousness and the consequent flourishing of wickedness. Not only is the state of the world so poor, but God looks upon his world and he says, no one can do anything about it. No one. And this is not hyperbole. God actually knows the state of every single inhabitant of the earth's heart. He knows their capacity because he made them. And he says, there's not a one of them that can change this. Not one. And God in his displeasure appalled at the state of the world determines to take charge in verse 16 we find that God with his own arm brings salvation his righteousness God is intimately invested and involved in bringing the hope to the world in chapter 53 and verse 11 we find that God has already provided righteousness for the many who will trust in him but here we see that not only is there righteousness for those who will trust, but there is also judgment, justice, for those who will reject his goodness. And Jesus, we know, is going to take on the mantle of what Isaiah is prophesying here. And at the beginning of his public ministry, we're not going to read it today, but chapter 61, we'll come to it later on this month, next month rather. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue and he says that in verse 2 of that chapter he finishes up with saying to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and it's at that point that Jesus stops and he rolls up the scroll and he says today these words have been fulfilled in your presence but the verse continues to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and Jesus rolled it up at the year of the, the, the Lord's favour, that, you know, that, that proclamation, and said, today, we're here. That's where we are. The kingdom of God had come into the world. And Jesus proclaims this as fulfilled. He didn't miss the next part of the verse. 
See, Jesus knew that the vengeance of God was for another day. He knew that the vengeance of God, that day would be inaugurated at the cross. And that the wrath of God would be poured out upon Jesus Christ. Taking upon himself, even becoming, as the scriptures teach us, sin in our place for our sake. This is a a, a radical moment in the saving of the world. And in that day, the, the, the day of God's vengeance, his righteous wrath, his judgment is inaugurated. As we've been uh, glimpsing briefly in our evening gatherings, there is a day to come when the fulfillment of the day of the wrath of God will be, it'll be completed. It will come to its culmination. These things are to come. And we need reminding of this. We need reminding of the justice of God. We need reminding that sin is a problem. That wickedness is a problem. And that our world cannot be made right, made new, without attending to this problem. As well as sometimes thinking that our times are exceptional, we also fool ourselves or lie to ourselves with the sense that everything's going to be okay. Anybody ever find themselves telling themselves that? I've been doing it pretty much for these past three years of trying to figure out what a parent looks like. It's going to be all right. Somehow it's all going to come together. Um, you feel overwhelmed sometimes. And you just say, it's going to be okay. It's going to... The Bible is teaching us here. There isn't a big enough rug on earth that you can sweep the problem of sin under. It can't be dealt with in that way. The brokenness of this world, come on, you try and put the broken world under a rug, you're going to trip over that bump. It's too big. It's too terrible. So God will deal with it. We note that there is a day of the vengeance of our God. A day of his vengeance. And so, as we see, the sovereign conqueror puts on his armor. Now, it's it's an image that we find a couple of times in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Again, in chapter 59, we've seen it in verse 17. He puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Interesting, isn't it? That, that when we look at the armor of God that we in Ephesians 6 are instructed to put on, we don't have any vengeance armor. There's no vengeance armor for the believer because the Bible says that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. If you ever feel tempted to wreak a little vengeance in this world, then ask God's mercy because that ain't your business. It ain't your business. And if you're tooling up for it, getting clothed up for it, let me tell you, that stuff's not coming from God. It's coming probably from the other place. So come on, Christian. We tool up recognizing that we get to do so because God got into his armor first. And God is getting into his armor realistically. It's not to fight a battle so much. This is pretty one-sided, the picture we have here in Isaiah. No, he is simply delivering the justice of God, the righteousness of God. And before his righteous justice, who can stand? 
I remind you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you only stand before God because of Jesus. There's nothing you can do or nothing that you can say that could deflect or dissuade the righteous wrath of God. But the work of Jesus does so on your behalf. He clothes you in his righteousness. No vengeance for you, but his righteousness so that you can stand before your God. What grace is this? Because when God gets into his armor, boom. Nothing. Not one thing can stand before his glorious justice. You look at this picture, and my hope and my prayer is that it makes you a little uncomfortable. Or please, even God, maybe a lot uncomfortable. Because time and time again, we picture and paint for ourselves just a half of God. You know, we had the privilege this morning of singing of the lion and the lamb. But we, we oftentimes picture the meekness of the lamb, don't we? But do we so regularly picture the uncontrollable, glorious strength of the lion? Because you can't control that God. And you're not made to. But you are made to submit to his righteous rule and reign. He is the sovereign conqueror. And how does your life look? How does my life look like saying he's in charge of everything? This is hard. God is victorious. I love Colossians 2.15 talking about the work of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. It says that he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, this is incredible. The imagery that we're getting here is, is probably from a Roman kind of military setting when they would conquer an enemy and then they would bring back the kings and generals and rulers of the enemy and they would parade them through the city streets to their shame. This is the imagery we have. Every power and principality that said that they were in charge of this world every demonic activity, even the very powers of death and sin and hell themselves, Jesus Christ is parading them to their open shame because he is victorious in all things. He's victorious in all things. And this is the God that we are having pictured here for us in all of his um, utterly sovereign rule, in his choice, his determination as to how he must deal with wickedness. This is the God who was presented to us. He's a God who doesn't think twice about dealing with wickedness. Splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, Isaiah 63 puts it. But then we see that this apparel is stained red, like somebody who's been tramping red grapes in the wine press. But the imagery we have is not of grapes but of the trampling of the wicked. And it's not grape juice that has stained his garments, but it is the blood of those who have been destroyed. And right in the heart of this, verse four, 
we find that vengeance in the heart of God and the year of his redemption are paired together. This is hard for us to understand. My sense, generally speaking, is that when we come up to these passages of God's righteous judgment of wickedness, the struggle that we have is oftentimes because of us and not of him. My experience and my understanding is you don't find complaints about the righteous justice of God amongst those who are pressed hard by wickedness. These Jews who first received this prophetic word of Isaiah, they lived under existential threat. They knew that it seemed at any moment that the people of God might be wiped from the face of the earth. They've got no issue with God coming and trampling down the wicked, none whatsoever. If you were to go around our world today and find yourself in, in Syria or, or Burkina Faso or, or North Korea or any place where you find the people of God under existential threat, that their lives are literally being snuffed out in a moment. These people, they have no issue whatsoever with a God of justice dealing righteously with the wickedness of this world. I want to say to you, Christian, here we are in these comfortable environment, these comfortable surroundings, and I want to challenge you to stop being offended by a God who deals with wickedness. And start to ally yourself with a God who deals righteously with wickedness. You know, we say, how, how, how can it be right that God's garments are stained with the blood of the wicked? How, how can this be in my Bible? How would you have it? Would you have it that the garments of the folks of this earth are stained with the lifeblood of your brothers and Christ, sisters in Christ Jesus? Would you have, are, you, are we more comfortable with that? Is this happening all the time? Right around the world, the blood of our sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ is pouring into this earth. And it cries out to our Savior. Just as blood poured out ever has cried out to God and said, how long will this injustice last? Christians, we need to start to have our lives and our understandings reframed. And to see this world through the sight of a saviour. Now here's this wonder and here's this truth. There is a day of vengeance. But then there is a year of redemption. I don't think that God chooses his time frames or his words accidentally or by chance. There is a day of vengeance. You know there was a good Friday when our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ was placed so cruelly upon a cross. But because of that one day, every day since has been a day of salvation. Because of that day of his rising from the grave, there have been day after day after day of salvation. These days that you and I have basked in, days of being bought out of slavery to sin and for his glory. And there will come a day of his righteous judgment upon this earth. And I would be wrong in handling the scriptures to pretend to you that it will be anything other than terrible. Days of vengeance that came upon the people of the Old Testament who who thought to try and do away with God's people. Those days, they were terrible. Read them for yourself. They They were just terrible. 
And the day that will come upon those who wickedly pursue against God and his people, that day will be terrible. But then the fulfillment of his redemption, the year, this, this time, this, 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 this wonder that will extend into all eternity of knowing the fullness of his saving grace. It's glorious. It's beautiful. And so I would ask you as we draw to a close, who do you fear? Who do you fear? And people who heard the words of Isaiah and they heard vividly pictured for them a sovereign conqueror, armored in splendor, dealing with wickedness. They had to decide for themselves. All right, Isaiah says he's heard from God. He's got a good track record in this, but he is quite challenging and I don't know whether I like him. And so they had to ask themselves, do I believe that what Isaiah is saying is of God is truer than the armies on our borders. They had to ask themselves, is the God in the armor that Isaiah has seen, is he bigger and stronger than the gods of Babylon say? Is he? Or have we got it wrong? Have we been mistaken? Should we maybe just try a different idea? But when they chose to trust in their God again, they saw this arm of salvation. For God had not stopped looking on them. He was appalled at the wickedness that surrounded them and it even infected them. And he brought his righteous redemption and his day of vengeance. He will again. The cross speaks this to us. And the question for us today is, who's bigger? Who's bigger in your estimation? Who's bigger in your heart, in your mind? Who's bigger in your home? Who's bigger in your diary and in your bank balance and in your relationships and your parenting and, and, and the choices that you make and the places that you go? Who's bigger? Is it the God who is God or the gods of this world? Where is your trust? Where is your trust? Is it in political leaders who purport to be messiahs of various types? I'll quote another movie. They're not the messiah. They're just a naughty boy. Or is your trust in the one and true messiah? Once for all. Given for you and for me. You know the truth of salvation. Come on. Who's come and captivated your heart with another gospel? The one who has saved, is saving, will save, and he will do it completely. Amen. So who are you afraid of? Are you afraid of the wickedness of this world? Or do you allow the fear of the Lord to be the beginning of wisdom in your life? Do you come before him with reverence and fear? Do you work out your salvation with trembling and fear? What are you afraid of? This is the message of the book of Isaiah to us. No matter what is without us, Indeed, no matter what is within us, Jesus is the answer for it all. Come on, Christian, are you afraid of giving something up today? Are you afraid of true surrender? Are you afraid of laying down your life at the foot of the cross? 
Let the fear of the Lord be your guide. Ally yourself with him while you still may. Allow this to be the marker, the signifier, the defining factor of your life. Would you stand with me? Those who are leading us to praise this sovereign conqueror will come again as we draw to a close. Christians, can I invite you to examine your life before our sovereign Jesus? And for these moments, so that we're not distracted, perhaps we'll bow our heads, close our eyes. Oh, let me urge you, consider yourself before him. But perhaps before you do that, consider him. Consider him who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Consider him who having done all is now seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. The Bible tells me that he is living for you and he is your life and he is interceding for you and he has asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit in his name for your good. And so this morning, this afternoon as we move into it, we recognize we are not enough but he has done everything that is necessary. And so, come on, I just urge you, I urge you, please don't miss these opportunities. Don't miss these opportunities that what is happening in the next moment of your life is not important. It is not important. What happens before the the Savior in this moment is important. If you had no more days of your life, it would not matter. This day, this counts. Please, I urge you, Consider yourself before him. Please, I urge you. We come before him just in view of God's mercy. It's all you got. Stop lying to yourself that you've got another way. You have no other way. You have the mercy of God and that's it. That's it. If you don't have that, you will not stand. You will not. I don't care how clever you are. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how good you consider yourself to be. This moment, please come before your God. Come before your God. So important. How will you live? you live recognizing that you are not enough that he is your more than enough would you live in this fashion you live life surrendered to his sovereignty you are not your own you were bought with the price of his precious blood You you think you read these words of scripture you think God takes blood lightly he does not he shed every drop for you How will you live? Come on. Not my words, but your life presented to Christ. Come on, would you do that? My words can't save you.
put your life in the hands of God. That's it. My conviction won't change you. If you allow the Spirit of God to convict you, it will. Come on. Give your life to Him. Give your life to Him. Give your life to Him. Come on, consider yourself before Him. Consider yourself before Him. This world will pass away. Everything in it. This word that we have here spoken together. The word Christ Jesus made flesh. That's what endures. Nothing that isn't surrendered and submitted to him will, 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 will remain. Surrender to him. Jesus.